Like many festivals and ceremonies through the passages of time, Samhain continued with the coming of Christianity. All Saints Day is November 1st in honor of the saints both known and unknown. So it's only fitting that the day before All Saints Day is called All Hallows Eve. We know that typical Halloween festivities consist of trick-or-treating, costume parties, carving pumpkins, bobbing for apples, pulling pranks, visiting haunted houses, telling scary stories, and finally, let's not forget, watching your favorite horror movies. Even though October 31st is known by many different names, it's a time traditionally and mythologically when warlocks, witches, and the souls of the dead were set free to roam the earth. The hour before midnight is called the witching hour, when our departed friends have a chance to return and walk among the living. In many parts of Scotland, it was customary to leave an empty chair and a plate of food for any quote-unquote guests who might appear. To this day, flames from Halloween bonfires can still be seen on the ramparts of the ancient castles in Scotland. In the past, boys and girls would blacken their faces and pretend to be spirits. The custom traced back to a time when children could be disguised as spirits and walk among the dead that evening. Any child who approached a house would be given a token to ward off evil spirits. In today's world, turnips are no longer used as lanterns. Pumpkins are now commonplace and children no longer have to blacken their faces to walk among the dead. Instead, they wear their first grade dance costumes. They wear vampire fangs and use fake blood. But oh, how different is this from the Festival of Flame known as Salween. My name is Ben James. I'm your host. We're glad that you're joining us here for this second part of our History of Halloween series. If you have not caught the first part, it's not necessarily necessary. If I'm going to have an Austin Powers moment there, it's not a necessity that you go back and listen to the first one before you listen to this one, but it would help to understand the geography of the land, the importance that some of the locations played in the history of Halloween that we're talking about here. We are talking about the ancient Celtic times some 5,000 years ago leading up to this and there were three places that were very significant to this story and the history of Halloween and what we're going to be talking about here this evening called Sawin or if you look at the title you will see it says Samhain. Yes, it's spelled Samhain, but it is pronounced, to the best of my ability, anyhow, is Sawin. 
Now, I made a little bit of a disclaimer in the first episode, and I am going to go ahead and make it again in this episode. Not that I feel like it's an absolute necessity for me to do it, but if you are listening to this without listening to the first episode, and you like to just get crazy and take things completely out of context and not listen to the historical background, then I do feel like I need to reiterate the fact that I am dealing with as much history here as I can possibly dig up within my cursory research ability anyhow. And I am trying to present historically accurate elements of this story of this festival called Sawin. And there's a lot of thought on the afterlife, on the other world, the underworld, all of the different worlds, and how the afterlife interacts and is a part of what we do today and back then. This is not an endorsement on my part as to whether I believe this or not. Matter of fact, I am completely detaching what I believe from these episodes and just trying to give you as much of a straightforward historical, mythological, and a folklore aspect of what the holiday of Halloween that we celebrate now, the history, the folklore, the mythology, all of that, trying to give you a good look into that without endorsing or arguing against any of these concepts. So with that being said, let's get into looking at the actual festival of fire known as Samhain. Samhain, being the festival of fire, has also held a place in some minds as the Feast of the Dead as well with some holding to it as being seen as incorporating the cult of Don, the Lord of the Dead, that we referenced in part one of this series. They believed he is brought into the ceremony at Samhain, but whether this is accurate or not, or how they did so, remains uncertain. The idea that Samhain is a juncture between the two halves of the year placed it in an unusual realm of being suspended in time. It didn't belong to the old year, and it did not yet belong in the new. We view the year in modern times as being comprised of four parts, spring, summer, autumn, and winter, while for the ancient Celts it was primarily viewed as two seasons, winter and summer. So this night, the night of Samhain held a weird place of not being a part of summer, but it had yet to become winter. Many believe that it could be said that time stood still on this night, and the implications of this could be, and were in some cases, extremely terrifying. During this night, and the limbo that it was believed to represent, the natural order of life, of nature, and time, also the spiritual realm was thrown into chaos, and the earthly world of the living, and not only living humans, but also livestock and plants and nature itself were all dangerously threatened by death, moving its way into their reality during this time. To put it simply, it was believed that the world of everything living became hopelessly entangled with the world of the dead. The world of the dead was itself a complicated place, populated not only by the spirits of the departed, but in Celtic mythology, it also represented a host of gods, fairies, and other creatures of really uncertain nature. The unwary traveler caught away from home on this night could expect to encounter any one or many of these creatures as it was always advisable during this time to stay indoors. Spirits were everywhere 
and may or may not have been harmful to the living. Celtic lore and mythology is littered with stories of the world of the living mixing with the world of the dead and becoming entangled. The following is a story that supposedly was handed down from one of the first Samhain festivals. Now this story has been adapted by Kelly Lowry in 2013 and she has done a fantastic job of using modern terms to tell the story. It had been his hope, his prayer, a litany deeply contained within his soul, a wish hidden so far beneath the surface of his mind he dared not speak it until now. Putting the thought aside, he lay in the lush grass beneath the oak tree, watching the clouds float by in the gentle breeze. His eyes closed as he dozed off. Following a whisper on the breeze, she came upon a lone figure. The corners of her mouth turned up as she blew a small kiss in his direction. She had been lonely, and to find such a delightful man pleased her. At the stirring of his hair, he turned his head in her direction. She spoke again. Thomas, awaken. Slowly, he opened his eyes and stared at the woman in front of him. Who are you? he asked. I am that which you seek, and also a queen. Smiling, she leaned over and offered him her hand. He was afraid to touch her, only to learn that he was dreaming. But still, he was more afraid of offending her if he did not take her hand. The woman was ethereal. Her skin was flawless and almost glowing. Her hair was very long and straight a dark red-brown, and her eyes were a brilliant blue. His thumb brushed the back of her long green sleeve as he stood. The deep forest green of her dress embraced her body lovingly. I will be your servant, he said. Will you come with me, Thomas? she asked. He noticed a large, white horse waiting patiently beneath a tree. The long mane and tail of the horse were interwoven with colorful ribbons and the tack was of ornately carved leather. Without hesitation, he turned to her and put his hand on her waist, lifting her up atop the horse. For a split second, his father's words came to his mind about never accepting things as they appeared, for much more could hide beneath the surface. Looking up at the beautiful woman before him, he put the warning to the back of his mind. To where do we journey, he asked. To my lands, though they are far. Would you still go with me, Thomas, she asked. I would. Come then. He nodded and began walking alongside the horse. The farther they went, the more the countryside started to look different. Bright and contrasting, it looked almost eerie and unearthly. She captivated him, 
and Thomas felt his thoughts becoming more difficult to control as confusion clouded his mind. Reaching out, she put her hand on his shoulder and smiled to reassure him. You desired to see something of the underworld. Well, here I am. At her touch, he felt as if the ground were no longer beneath him, and he nodded. You hesitate before me? Why, Thomas? I... I'm not certain, my queen. I had not thought to see anything of the sort. Be careful what you wish for, for you may receive it. And what then? She pulled the horse to a stop. Putting his hands up, he allowed her to lean into them, and then he set her on the ground gently. I never believed this could happen. Please, my lady, tell me your name. A small smile graced her features. He found himself unable or unwilling to remove his hands from her waist. Leaning over, he kissed her. It progressed from a gentle, slow kiss to an inquisitive touch, as if he were seeking her permission. When she didn't resist, he drew her closer to him. Since you kissed me of your own free will, I shall allow you to choose which you would do. Will you continue to journey along with me, or will you return to your world? Looking at the queen, he saw a subtle change within her face. An impression of hate gleamed in her eyes, and her features sharpened into a shadow of something non-human. Heat seared through him, and he shook his head quickly to dispel the illusion. I would return, my queen. You have chosen, so it shall be. Return whence we came, and you shall reach your world soon enough. At her words, unexplainable relief washed over him. Thank you. Before I go, might I ask, where is your domain, my queen? Turning the horse to ride away, the beautiful woman spoke, knowing the words would make his blood run cold. Not where, Thomas, but rather what? I am the Phantom Queen. My domain is death. She smiled coldly at him, disappointed that he had chosen to return and not to remain. He turned and walked away, understanding that he had been most fortunate Indeed. It's interesting to note that manuscripts tell us that all fires in the country were to be extinguished on this night and could only be relit from the great flames from Tlatka. 
Now this symbolized the brief and temporary rise of the powers of darkness and the diminishing powers of life at this time of year. As it was believed that spirits were free to wander around at this time with no limitations. The extinguishing of the fires was used in part to bring as little attention to the dwelling places as possible. There was very much a belief that the fires both in their homes and during the festivals, if lit before the appropriate time, would very much serve like a mothman to a flame. Terrible pun, I realize that, but I couldn't resist it. But during this period, all the world was in darkness and the dead were scattered abroad. I think it's necessary to include the fact that not all spirits here were viewed as evil. However, during the assigned portions of Sawin, all spirits, both good and evil, were loosed at one time. They believed that the truly evil and malevolent spirits were quite often so bent on restitution, on revenge, or any other sort of unsavory motives that they did not linger around long if obvious signs of opportunity were not presented to them. And thus, they would vacate the area quickly if they found no fast targets. When the fire at Tlotka was lit, it gave the signal that all was well and all other fires could now be relit. The fire during this festival was a public celebration of the victory of light and the victory of life, while the relighting of the household fire marked the domestic celebration of the feast which was to begin. It was then that the spirit of the dead ancestors was believed to be welcomed back into the home with safety and posed no threat to the household. As they viewed the quote-unquote success of the evening as a sign that although winter and death in nature lay ahead of them during the winter, life and light would soon be on the rise again. However, the lighting of both the fires at Tlotka and the homesteads did not mean that all the spirit activity was over. Very often the spirits of the family members sought warmth around the fireside on this night. Fires, once relit, were stoked and left burning to warm the spirits and food was left out for them to enjoy. Even though it was believed that these ancestral ghosts were benign, it was still a good idea to avoid them if you could by going to bed early. It is believed, however, that these ancestral ghosts may not have been entirely benign. They needed some sort of appeasement in the form of ritual offerings on this night. So long as the offering was forthcoming, the ghost and the spirits seemed to be happy and benevolent. But if the offering was withheld, another side of the ghost and the spirit's features seemed to come to the front. If they were not appeased, it was believed that bad luck would descend on the household and all would not be well in the coming year. Some of the aspects of this tradition have survived into our modern Halloween custom of trick-or-treat. Children dressed as ghosts and witches invite the household to make a donation or face the consequences. The treat may represent the ritual offering, while the trick, nowadays may be a harmless prank, may have in antiquity represented the malevolent consequences of not appeasing the ancestral ghost on the night of Sawin. But it wasn't just time that was believed to be suspended at Sawin. Just as the festival stands on the boundary between summer and winter, the people believed that all other boundaries were in danger at this time as well. The boundaries between family land and neighbor's land were an extremely dangerous place to be on this night 
because they believed ghosts and spirits were believed to be found along all of these points, and they were places of particular dread and were best to be avoided. Bridges and crossroads were also likely places to encounter ghosts. Now, naturally enough, even as today, burial places at this time were to be avoided on all nights, but in particular, they avoided them on this night. Every sort of ghost and spirit was to be seen here, and the dead mingled freely with the living. The practice of divination, or telling the future, was an important part of everyday life for the Celtic people, and it's certain that this formed a central part of the festivals during Samhain. Parts of this can be seen in our time as today there are some churches who still have a practice of going to the church at midnight on Halloween and standing on the porch to serve as protectors of the church. And while most of us who attend Christian church services would view this as extreme and quite honestly somewhat ridiculous, it would serve us well to understand that several of the quote-unquote superstitions surrounding events and moments in history can find their foundation in the church history, as evidenced by this story. I want to read an article put together by Tess Feifel on the Astonishing Legends podcast website on October 17th, and it's titled Church Grims. It is known as the Church Grim. No matter where you may hear the story, the lore surrounding this particular creature is fascinating. Church Grims are popular in both English and Scandinavian folklore. Despite its ominous and frightening appearance, Many believe that the church grim is an attendant spirit sent to oversee a church. Although they are an attendant spirit, church grims are not some dapper gentleman dressed in clothes of old or a gentle animal. Instead, church grims usually appear as intensely fierce black dogs ready to protect the church. In some stories, the dog can also be rams, horses, roosters, or even ravens. In Scandinavian legend, it is also said that they can also appear as pale, human-like ghosts who were once parishioners. The church grim may not be as cute and as cuddly as what you would like to picture. Instead, the church grim's one goal is to protect the church and keep it safe from evil. It is a guardian spirit, and some people believe this was because that early Christians and early churches may have sacrificed animals when a new church was built and they would bury them on the north side of the land. Why would they do this? Well, it was once assumed by several different religious traditions, including Christianity, that whoever was the first and or last being interred in the church's cemetery would be forced to serve as its guardian for all of the years to come. So that this tough existence wouldn't be granted to some poor soul at random, an animal was often sacrificed and buried in the churchyard or on the church grounds. Some of the more gruesome traditions suggest that the animal would be buried alive. However good its intentions may be, you do not want to bump into a church grim. Church grims are often said to be an omen and a herald of doom and death to those who see it. It's said during Samhain that the courageous observer, 
who dares go outside the safety of their own homes, can see spirits of those who will die in the coming year if they watch closely. But in doing so, but in doing so, they also run the risk of meeting and seeing themselves. Similarly, girls watching in a mirror on this night can see the image of the man that they will marry, but they also run the risk of seeing the devil himself. Those brave enough to go to a graveyard at midnight and walk three times around the graves will be offered a glimpse of the future, but again, run the risk of meeting the devil. The possibility of meeting the devil may represent the well-known Christian belief that associates the pagan god of the dead with the devil himself of the Christian belief. With this being the case, Don, the Lord of the Dead, again, whom we covered in part one of this series, on this night left his island home and traveled freely throughout the countryside. Now, whether he carried off souls or not is unclear and still debated to this day, but most believe that it's likely that he did. The offerings on the winter fire during this time period may have been an attempt to appease him. Until, however, with the passage of time in history, Don, the Lord of the Dead, was replaced on the arrival of Christianity by the devil. The early Irish manuscripts are littered with references to the magical significance of Samhain. It marked the end of the fighting and hunting season for the warrior troops. It is said during Samhain they retreated into winter camps, quartering themselves on the general population until the return of summertime. There are countless stories of men and women of ancient Celtic times acting in heroic ways or choosing an act that would, without a doubt, leave their mark in the country's history during the festival of Samhain. Fionn McCummel chose this time to present himself before the court at Tara for the first time. While it was also at Samhain that the god Lu made his dramatic entrance to the same court. The queen, Meave, waited until Samhain before setting out on the great cattle raid of Cooley. Fionn, Lu, and Meave's opponent are three great figures in the Irish mythology, and all of them chose Samhain as the time to introduce their arrival upon the scene. There remains little doubt that Samhain held a central place in the imagination of the Celtic people. Where the festivals associated with several local gods became entangled over the course of perhaps a thousand years with the feast of the God of the Dead. Remnants of these celebrations have come down to us today in our own celebrations of Halloween. To highlight just briefly the history and the evolution of Samhain into modern day Halloween after it became Christianized, let's take this really quick journey through history. We're just going to bookmark these dates, events, and changes because we're going to be discussing these at length in our next episode. In AD 43, after four centuries of Roman rule, additional celebrations were added to the Celtic festival of Samhain. One was a day to honor Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. As the symbol for this goddess is the apple, it's commonly believed that from this festival came the tradition of bobbing for apples on Halloween. In AD 609, All Martyrs Day, a day to honor all saints and martyrs, became a tradition in the Roman Church each November 1st. In 1000 AD, the Roman Church dedicated November 2nd as All Souls Day in honor of the dead. This day was celebrated with dressing up in devil, angel, and saint costumes 
and with bonfires and parades. All Saints Day celebration was also referred to as All Hallows, and the night before began to be called All Hallows Eve, which eventually became Halloween. In 1556 AD, the tradition we now call trick-or-treating has its beginning in a three-day event called All Hallow Tide. These three days span the eve of All Saints Day into All Souls Day, during which the participants dress in black to mourn the dead. This also begins the practice of souling, in which peasants go door-to-door -door begging for food and treats given out in memory of the dead. In the 1600s, Halloween is banned by the Puritans of New England because they consider it a Catholic holiday. Then, for the next 200-plus years, Halloween is celebrated primarily by Catholics and Episcopalians. In the 1700s, many of the traditions still associated with Halloween today began to develop. Celebrants began to dress up and go door-to-door -door singing for treats, turnips, and turned the turnips into lanterns, and tricks were frequently played on others to imitate the hijinks of evil spirits. In the late 1800s, Irish and Scottish immigrants fleeing from the Irish potato famine arrive en masse to America and bring with them their Halloween traditions, making the celebration even more popular. And in the early 1900s, Halloween becomes a more secular holiday, with the focus taken away from witchcraft and ghosts, and instead placed on family and friend get-togethers, parties, and parades. But we can save the details of all of that for the next episode. For now, let's get back to the Festival of Fire itself, and look at the darker side of Samhain. We have looked briefly in passing at how there were sacrifices of livestock made at the Festival of Fire. But some tales may suggest that additional offerings and sacrifices were made at Samhain. In the Book of Invasions, each Samhain the people had to give two-thirds of their children, their corn, and their milk to the monstrous Fomorians. The Fomorians seemed to represent the harmful or destructive powers of nature, personifications of chaos, darkness, death, and drought. This tribute paid by the people may represent a sacrifice offered at the beginning of winter when the power of darkness and chaos were on the rise. According to the Annals of the Four Masters, which were written by Christian monks, Samhain in ancient Ireland was associated with a god or an idol. The text claimed that a firstborn child would be sacrificed at the stone idol during Samhain. The people are all warned of their impending doom by three undead horsemen who are messengers of dawn, god of the dead. Stories also say that each year someone would be killed to mark the occasion by persons unknown. Some academics suggest that these tales recall human sacrifice and argue that several ancient Irish bog bodies appear to have been kings who were ritually killed, some of them around the time of Samhain. It is said that one wicked king would set a test of bravery on the night of Samhain. He would offer a prize to whoever could make it to the gallows and tie a band around a hanged man's ankle. It's believed that each challenger was thwarted by demons and would run back to the king's hall in fear. However, one brave man found himself successful, and upon arrival, the dead man hanging would then ask for a drink. The man would carry the dead man on his back, and they would stop at three homes. As they entered the third house, the dead man would finally receive his drink, but he would turn around and then spit it out on the householders, killing all of them. 
Returning to the king's hall, the man would see a fairy host burning it and slaughtering everyone inside. He then valiantly and bravely follows the fairy host through a portal into the other world. After narrowly escaping with his life, he learns that what he had thought he was experiencing was only a vision of what will happen the next Sawin unless something is done. In the story, he is able to return to the hall and he warns the people of the ill intent of their king. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Walls podcast. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by just simply searching for Beyond the Walls podcast. You can also email us. And in fact, I want to take a moment and encourage uh, our Irish listeners in particular. However many times I butchered a word or a pronunciation, Understand, number one, that I did do a little bit of research behind it and listen to some videos, but there were so many different pronunciations that I could not be certain which one was the proper one. So if you are in Ireland and you are listening, or if you are Irish Heritage and understand that I am horribly mispronouncing a word, please let me know. Email me at beyondthewallspodcast at gmail.com. Even better than just typing it out, go ahead and record yourself saying the word, pronouncing it properly, and let me know about it because I want to make sure I do this as well as I possibly can.